Welcome to episode 15 of The Tarsans Diplomat, which has rocketed up 2,000 spots in the last month on the Amazon list of thrillers to reach number 15,234. Please help McGregor crack the top 10,000. Leave a review on Amazon.ca. The Tarsans marketing department just realized we need reviews on iTunes for their search algorithm too. So if you haven't rated the podcast on iTunes, please do us the favor of clicking on ratings and reviews. Thanks. Now, here's the author, and by now, GarageBand podcasting expert, Keith Halliday, reading episode 15. The Tarsan's Diplomat, chapter 17, A Memorable Dinner. I arrived early at the ambassador's official residence for the dinner. The minister had finished his meetings at the commission and spoken to a few journalists without any Green Alliance ambushes. In a few hours, Can-Do Canada would be over. We could put everyone on the plane back to Canada, I thought, and get back to normal. As the guests were not supposed to arrive for another 20 minutes, I decided to slip into the kitchen to chat with the ambassadorial butler. After having seen the eccentricities of a dozen ambassadors come and go, Serge is completely unflappable. His absolute control of his eyebrows is nothing less than a marvel. Even when one of our compatriots demands a Coke or a squirt of HP sauce with his sauté minute de boeuf flandrienne. Best of all, Serge can be relied upon to slip thirsty mission staff a potent pre-dinner martini if it looks like they're wilting under the Sisyphean labor of defending Canadian interests in a hostile world. I've always admired Serge's ability to project an air of unconcern whenever things go wrong at the official residence. So it was with alarm that I found the martini mixer lying unchilled on the counter as I entered the kitchen. Ah, the pathos of the empty martini glass, I thought, as I picked one up to go in urgent search of its master. I rounded the corner into the pantry, where I was amazed to discover Serge kneeling on the floor, shaking a large black duffel bag and hissing some bon mot he must have picked up during his military service in the Belgian Navy. Problems with your luggage, Serge? I asked kindly in French. I hope it won't interfere with the martinis. I need a strong one before I face the senator again. Serge flashed me a venomous look and stood up. I staggered backwards as the black devil bag was revealed as the inert form of Chef Milagro. Milagro's real name was Henderson, but he went with a single brand name like a Brazilian soccer star. The ambassadress had recently poached the stylishly dressed artiste culinaire from the South Korean official residence. Chef Milagro was dressed in his trademark black pants, turtleneck, and blazer, but, unlike during his job interview when he sported his beret with a rakish tilt, his headgear lay beside him filled with vomit. A vodka bottle was tucked under his arm like a teddy bear. Serge was on the edge of panic. He always insisted on practicing his English on me, but the Chef Milagro incident appeared to have undermined his already shaky grammar. The guests arrive! They arrive! I'm calling already Marie Antoinette, but she said no! He went on in garbled English to explain that our favorite caterer, Marie Antoinette, was still upset at us after the ambassador wanted to save money and told Marie Antoinette to serve maple-flavored hot dogs left in the freezer by some trade delegation. Serge threw his hands up in the air and actually began to sob. It is, how you say in English, it is un désastre. Someone had to do something, so I quickly mixed a pair of martinis. This seemed to perk up the old man. The Koreans never tell me why they refuse our dinner invitations. Now I know. He gave Milagro a vicious kick. Our prize chef moaned and clutched his bottle. As we sipped and Serge played with his olive, his spirits slowly began to recover. Drinkingness was not unknown in the navy of Belgium, he mused. You make sober this bastard, and I oblige him to make the dinner. Allons-y, 
I poured a whole can of coffee into the machine as Serge kicked, slapped, and poured ice water on Malagro. The chef moaned, rolled over, and filled his beret one more time. He looked up, trying to focus. Once he recognized the bloodshot rage in Serge's eyes, Malagro cringed in fear. Bastard, hissed Serge. You wanted I serve your balls to the minister, you know, fried oysters? We got a pint of coffee into Malagro, and he was able to stand unsteadily on his own feet. But I didn't get a chance to do the shopping, muttered Malagro, putting up his arm to ward off another blow. Serge kicked him deftly in the shins instead. Improvise! McGregor said Serge, This chef bastard work now. You go to the reception and make more slow the invité. I stood in the salon, panting slightly, as I tried to develop a plan to slow things down. Elegantly slowing down a dinner party was an old-fashioned foreign service challenge, like one used to read about in memoirs from simpler times. Which time-tested gambit would work best tonight? The impromptu sortie into the garden? Perhaps drawing the ambassadress's latest garish modern art acquisition? But my scheming was suddenly interrupted when, from my blind side, I heard the fatal squeaking of wheelchair wheels. A thought flashed across my mind. What if she's seen through the Whiskey Magazine gambit? That's him, hooted the senator in delight as she spotted me, presumably looking forward to the kill. I gripped my martini tightly and turned to face my doom like a man. To my astonishment, however, the senator was smiling, and it was Violet who was pushing her towards me. Thank you for arranging the delightful whiskey tasting, young man, slurred the senator pleasantly. And what a fascinating young woman. She's from my hometown. Oh, there's the ambassador. See you in a moment, dear. The senator wheeled herself off, leaving a tire mark on the top of my shoe. McGregor, said Violet, you owe me. And you're damn lucky we really do represent the Whiskey Distillers Association. It's a miracle, I exulted. I couldn't believe my luck. And she's really from your hometown, I asked. Of course not, said Violet, but mine's exactly the same. She looked around mock conspiratorially and showed me the contents of her purse. She even asked me to carry her spare flask. Spare flask? I asked uncertainly, as I watched the senator maneuver unsteadily towards the ambassador. I saw her use her cane to hack a potted palm out of the way of her wheelchair, like a jungle explorer with a machete. Perhaps, I feared, the fates had spared me, only to exact a horrible revenge later. But don't worry about the senator's flask, said Violet. You know that whiskey bar off Avenue Louise? The one with the tasting room off the side with the windows that look back into the bar? She explained that she'd taken the senator there to distract her, only to have Dirk Beddo and Kennedy walk in, along with Len Sleeth from West Can Energy, Frittle's bagman Nigel Merton, and a flunky or two from the commission's energy unit. It must have been right after the minister's meeting with Frittle, said Violet conspiratorially. They must have been sorting out the naughty details. I raised an eyebrow. Whatever Beto was up to, he was doing it with the right people. I also wondered what Kennedy was doing there. Neither she nor Beto had mentioned anything to me about follow-up meetings with bigwigs from the commission. It wasn't the first time someone at the department had cut me out of a high-visibility file. I knew the signs. Violet continued. Then, get this, a minute after they come in, a black Mercedes SUV pulls up right in front of the whiskey bar and parks in the no-parking zone. Picture what gets out of the passenger side. Irina Lavrova! Like every other male who has watched tennis on television, I could indeed picture Irina Lavrova. Elizabeth was a tennis fan, and once, in an effort at rapprochement, I tried to watch an entire match with her. She later pointed out acidly that the only time I paid more attention to tennis than to my book 
was when they profiled Lavrova's new line of skimpy tennis outfits between games. I nodded at Violet. She, on the other hand, was one of those stylish urban professionals who plays fantasy hockey and actually watches the sports channel. Knowing sports never hurts chatting up the clients, either. But this had to be going farther than the usual celebrity stalking. Well, said Violet, come on, McGregor. Okay, I said, I'll admit it. I don't know where this is going. McGregor, which Russian oil tycoon has Lavrova attached herself to now that her tennis career is over? Oh, God, I said, Maxi Mashinsky. Exactly, replied Violet. He walks in right after her. They sit at the bar. He orders a talisker, and she has a gray goose and cranberry. They leave about 20 minutes later. And you're watching all this from the tasting room, I asked? Yeah, through those little stained glass window things. And did Mashinsky go talk to Nigel Merton, I asked? That's the thing, replied Violet. Mashinsky didn't even look over there. It's like he was pretending they weren't there. But Nigel Merton saw Mashinsky, I assume. It's hard to miss Mashinsky, said Violet, or Irina Lavrova when she's got the short skirt, heels, and fur coat thing going. Coincidence, I asked. Not many coincidences happen around Maxim Mashinsky, she replied. I was suddenly distracted by the sight of two men skulking past the glass salon doors in the dusky light. One had a pronounced stagger, and the other appeared to be carrying a picnic basket. I recalled the mission Serge had given me. Violet, I said, we'll have to talk about this later. The chef is drunk. Could you help me think of a way to delay dinner? But before she could reply, I was interrupted by Craig Kravinsky, who has an uncanny ability to sneak up on people. He waved cheerily to Violet and pulled me to one side. McGregor, two things, he said quickly. First, Kennedy suggested we invite a tame Canadian journalist to dinner. You know, to see that can-do Canada is what we really say it is. And, and what do we say it is, I asked. A trade mission helping a broad range of Canadian industries. Not a secret oil sands scheme like some of those conspiracy theory people were saying after the leak. Right, I replied. So, he went on, we invited the CBC Stringer woman. Toronto occasionally picks up her stories. She did one of the less embarrassing pieces on your media lunch yesterday. Kennedy also suggested getting Len Sleeth from Westcan to show up. Might be too obvious if he wasn't here. But he's going to keep a low profile and blend in. You know, sit at the end of the table, hang out with the asbestos guy. I talked to the butler dude. The CBC lady will be sitting beside you. She'll like you. She's got a French history degree or something. Your job is to focus her on our key messages and keep her away from Sleeth. Got it? I didn't really get it, but I nodded anyway. Super, said Ravinsky. But remember, stay on message. Will do. The second thing is that the minister would like to see you. I started. It's not a very good time. McGregor, twinks aren't allowed to say that. Oh, right. I'd be delighted to comply immediately with the minister's request, I said. My mind was reeling with drunken chefs, Russian oil tycoons, and ministers who suddenly couldn't live without me. The latter was the most worrisome since, in my long years at the department, no minister had ever evinced a desire even to have his briefcase carried by me. As we went up the stairs towards the guest suite, where the minister was staying, my trepidation grew. Now, McGregor, said Ravinsky soothingly, the minister is a man who leads a stressful life. He's under a lot of pressure, in the house and at home. Some of his hobbies are, well, a little embarrassing. What could he mean, I wondered. As I mounted the stairs, a series of disturbing official residence incidents floated across the brain. The parliamentary undersecretary and the captainette of the Guelph ringette team. The first secretary trade policy and the wife of the Nova Scotian premier. General Further and the chauffeur. The list was long and unedifying. I felt Pravinsky tugging on my sleeve. Come on, McGregor, you're slowing down. 
my mind filled with the press reports of the English Member of Parliament, found dangling in his hotel room, wearing an evening dress and with weird tropical fruits stuffed in his mouth. Even Dunscap Kenty's beating in a Helsinki sauna with a hot birch switch at the hands of the old Tory Secretary of State wasn't of the same Sodom and Gomorrah proportions as what I feared awaited me in the official residence guest suite. I turned to descend the stairs. I'll be back in a minute, I lied. But Hravinsky blocked my retreat. Don't forget, said Hravinsky as he steered me into the suite. No repeating what happens tonight. I'll know where it came from. He winked and shut the door behind me. The tension rose as I waited by the window. Outside, I noticed two shadowy figures squeezing through the hedge into the neighbor's yard. I froze abruptly, my cocktail glass hanging in mid-sip, as I heard a sudden outburst of barking and a drunken shriek of terror. The hedge swayed violently, and there was more shouting, until there was a sudden, surprised yelp, and then total silence. I gazed at the hedge uneasily for a moment, only to be reminded of my own perilous situation by off-tune humming emerging from the bathroom. I began to sweat and shifted apprehensively as the minister appeared over the bathroom, wearing a robe and smelling of cologne. Ah, hello. McGregor, isn't it? Sit down. Have a drink. Relax. He moved towards me with a friendly smile on his face and a jar of some kind of lotion in his hand. I, um, I don't know about this, I stuttered, backing away. Don't be coy, he said. I know you Foreign Service guys love this kind of thing. That, that's just a stereotype, really, I stuttered, finding that I had backed myself into a corner from which there was no escape. The minister continued to approach, his robe's belt slipping disturbingly. I've done it with the deputy minister and even Smedley, said the minister with a smile, right in my office. I was staggered. Not so much that the deputy minister might be gay, but that anyone, male or female, might want to smear the evil dwarf with lotion and rub up against him surrounded by all the weird Canadian art in the minister's private office. I stuttered again. It's not really my cup of tea, minister. I pleaded desperately. The minister was standing directly in front of me, barely a foot away. Oh, come on, McGregor. It's just a quick game of trivial pursuit said the minister indignantly, reaching past me and pulling a blue box off the shelf behind. It's a Canadian game, from Montreal even. Smedley almost beat me. I must admit that I stared in amazement at our minister as he cleared the table and set up the board. Hravinsky is total shit at this, he said. All he knows is hockey and Canadian politics. Here, pick one of the colored pies. We'll have a quick game while I get ready for dinner. The minister, usually seen viciously mocking the opposition on television, was flushed with boyish delight. I hear you're good at blue and yellow, McGregor. I gaped, open-mouthed, as bewilderment and then relief swept over me. I tried to banish the mental images of what I had feared was about to happen to me into the oubliette under my memory, where I keep the rest of my Foreign Service mental scars. The minister went on, you know, blue and yellow, history and geography. After the game, the minister and I walked down the stairs chatting amiably about European geography. It had been a close match. I'd been in the lead until the minister told me to start drawing his questions from a box of cards he kept in his briefcase. After that, he started answering questions about the Cabinda exclave with startling accuracy. I re-entered the salon to find Serge standing in his usual spot, looking back in command of the situation. Ah, Mr. McGregor, he used in franglais, you are at the top of your form. Making slower the dinner by guarding the minister in his room is the inspired coup of a champion of protocol. Surge is often melodramatic when dinner looms. It looks like you have everything under control. Of course. Milagro was most cooperative. I find that hard to believe, I said. You were kicking him when I saw you last. A temporary misunderstanding. He is agreeable when I threaten to tell the station chief of the Mossad, 
that Malagro is putting real bacon in his Caesar salad every time he eats at the South Korean ambassador's. The Mossad station chief is a regular with the South Koreans? I asked in amazement. Of course, replied Serge. Would he be asking the Canadian intelligence about North Korea selling missiles to Iran? In Brussels, I stuttered. What do you think the banks in Luxembourg are doing? Savings accounts for dentists? Serge's eyebrow signaled that he viewed the dilettantism of the Canadian Foreign Service officer with some disdain. Dinner is simple but elegant, continued Serge. First, I serve salade aux fleurs de courgette farcie de vieux fromage, followed by a poté ardennes à la canadienne. That sounds lovely, I said. How will you describe them later tonight to Madame Serge? Dandelion leaves and zucchini flowers from the neighbor's garden, stuffed with old cheese from the back of the icebox, followed by freeze-dried moose meat abandoned there by the Yukon trade delegation, camouflaged in an Ardennes stew with an overpowering sauce. You're to be commended on your versatility, Serge. And why are you serving the salad first? I thought you hated Canadian customs. Of course, but this bastard chef Milagro said he need another 20 minutes to make a sauce so powerful it can cover the aroma of the mousse. The maid beats the mousse in a washing basin now to make it flexible. She uses a hammer. Delightful, I said. And for the wine? A Canadian red, bien sûr. If Milagro's camouflage sauce is not completely effective, our chateau Mississauga will overpower any remaining odors from the food. I raised my glass to a master of his craft. Bravo, Serge. Tip yourself generously from the household expenses fund. Merci, McGregor. I will. Cornelia approached us in a state of high excitement. The neighbor's dog was chasing a homeless man through the backyard, she gasped. Oui, replied Serge, levelly in French. He always switched back to French when Cornelia was around, since he knew she had trouble understanding it. I knew the mansion beside us had been purchased by a South African mining executive, he continued, but I did not know he had a large Alsatian dog. Chef Milagro was, I believe, even more surprised to learn this. As Cornelia moved to sit down to dinner, Serge whispered into my ear in English, the beast bited him on the leg and holded him. If a croquet stick had not been near, I might have been forced to prepare the dandelion salad myself. At the far end of the table were George from the Asbestos Association, the Associate Grand Chief, the lumber guy whose name I kept forgetting, and Len Sleeth from West Can Energy. I sat between the CBC Stringer and Natalia Canola Kazanovich. On the other side of Natalia was the minister. In my experience, it is not wise to be an attractive and wide-eyed young woman enjoying the free wine and fine food of your first diplomatic meal with an easy groping distance of a cabinet minister. So I was somewhat surprised when the minister ignored her and kept leaning past her and barraging me with clarifying questions about the French Revolution and the borders of various South American countries. He also seemed fascinated by the ambassador's grayish-blue pallor and newly evident facial tick. The minister whispered conspiratorially to me as Serge refilled his glass. He didn't look that bad, even when the prime minister was about to whack him. Finally, Serge served the salad. I watched everyone's facial expressions carefully. This is an interesting salad, Natalia said politely as it was served. What is it? Salade aux fleurs de courgette farcie de vieux fromage, oozed Serge. I marveled at his sang-froid. Stuffed zucchini flour is a fashionable dish of the year, mademoiselle. Sounds yummy, replied Natalia with a smile, pleased like all English-Canadian women to be called a mademoiselle. And what about these leaves? Are they rocket? Natalia was making a note on the back of a business card, perhaps to serve it next time she wanted to dazzle the canola elite of Saskatoon. Uh, 
Feuille de pissenlit, mademoiselle, muttered Serge, slightly less suavely before fleeing back to the kitchen. The CBC stringer, who spoke French, looked at her dandelion leaf salad with some concern. Well, it all looks like rabbit food to me, pointed out Senator Buffard loudly. Still, you've got to eat it if you want to keep the old stools soft and regular. She shifted in her chair slightly, and I heard the rumble of flatulence muffled under layers of moo-moo. The senator turned and gave a disgusted look at Cornelia, who stared straight ahead in bewilderment. The salad course had somehow been a success, and we began to chew on our mousse. The CBC reporter to my left turned to me and cleared her throat. I hoped for a question on the French Revolution. Isn't there supposed to be someone from the oil sands here? she asked. Yes, I replied. That's him at the end of the table. Tall, thinning hair. Her eyes followed mine towards Len Sleeth, the West Can oil executive, at the other end of the table. You know, Sleeth was saying, I tried to come over here with an open mind. Maybe the steak in Europe would be as good as Alberta beef. He paused for effect. But this is truly awful. In fact, it would be un-Albertan to eat meat this bad, even with ketchup. He lifted his napkin and spat out a wad of half-chewed mousse. The CBC reporter stared at Sleeth for a moment. Good thing you're not an etiquette columnist, I noted. Across the table, the ambassador managed to swallow his chunk of meat and rose to his feet. As you all know, this can-do Canada mission has been a triumphant success. Some will try to claim otherwise, demanding to see signed agreements and other concrete signs of, well, success. So let me extend a special thanks to the minister, his staff, and all the little people. The ambassador, as so many have before him, looked quizzically at his speaking notes from Ottawa and tried to figure out what half-formed thought had been crossing the author's mind. Anyway, he continued, we all know that this visit was a great success because, well, we all know that. It's made a big difference. Our story told in our words, key European decision-makers, the media, thanks very much. Enjoy your meals. The ambassador sat down and looked around the table for a response from our visitors. I feel terrible, commented Senator Buffard. Woozy. Must have been the food. The CBC reporter turned to me again. Some people are saying this whole trade mission is really just about the oil sands. How would you react to that? Before I could deliver my talking point about the federal government's profound and unconditional love for each and every Canadian industry, the sharp sound of shattering glass came from the entrance hall. Serge burst into the dining room. He appeared unmanned for the second time that evening, and his eyes were wild with terror. C'est un manif, sauf qui peut. He ran past the table, out the patio doors, and across the back lawn. What did the butler guy say? asked Natalia, puzzled. Sounded like something like manif, replied Cornelia. Must be slang. I watched Serge's figure disappear into the darkness behind the house. Yes, I replied. It's short for manifestation, or protest. I decided not to tell them just yet that sauve qui peut meant save yourselves if you can. We all sat in silence for a moment. The ambassador's facial tick flickered, and he touched the bruise on his temple nervously. What do you think he meant? asked Natalia. Through the open doors, I saw Chef Malagro emerge from the kitchen door and stagger across the lawn towards the back gate, his pant leg flapping where it had been shredded by the neighbor's dog. The room felt tense and silent. Cornelia got up from the table, closed the garden doors, and said, Delightful weather, but a bit chilly in the evening, isn't it? I suppose this was supposed to be a display of calmness under fire. But when battle-hardened butlers flee their posts, some double-checking is in order. I excused myself and slipped into the foyer. I picked up the phone, but the line was dead. Suddenly, a heavy object smashed through the foyer window. I put my foot behind the front door and opened it a crack. I looked out onto the lawn. A mob of dark figures in Green Alliance t-shirts were advancing across the grass. They were wearing balaclavas or had handkerchiefs over their faces. 
A tall man was urging them forward. From his height and build, I guessed it was Ian Culloden. Two masked figures were carrying a huge banner, and several others had 20-liter gas cans. Another had a black shape in his hand, and with his arm drawn back to throw it. At least it wasn't burning like a Molotov cocktail, I thought. I cursed. Then I slammed the front door and bolted it. A projectile smashed through the window beside the door. Since we were in the suburbs, there were no convenient paving bricks for rioters, and it appeared they were throwing little ceramic garden animals the ambassador's wife had shipped over from Ottawa. A bright red squirrel about six inches high crashed through the window and hit the wall by my shoulder, knocking a group of seven reproduction to the floor. I dashed across the foyer to the dining room as a beaver and then a skunk landed behind me. The group looked up at me expectantly. Most looked worried, except the CBC reporter. She had her recorder and notebook out, and she looked as excited as someone at their own surprise birthday party. It's a riot! I threw open the French doors to the garden. I suggest we follow the butler out the back gate as quickly as possible. Cornelia shrieked hysterically and ran out the door, tripping over the threshold and slamming into the pavement. Kravinsky led the minister and the rest of the guests out the door in a stampede. Cornelia shrieked again as the minister planted his foot on her back and leaped over the flower planters. I was about to flee when Violet grabbed my arm. McGregor, she said, you can't leave the senator here all by herself. Something's wrong with her. I looked back at the senator. She was standing, wobbling on her feet with a dazed and confused look in her eye. She looks like she does on the parliamentary channel, I retorted as I moved to the door, grabbing a bottle of Chateau Mississauga for the road. No, no, said Violet. It's something worse than usual. We've got to help her. I'm an honorary member of the State Department's Cuckoo Club, open to diplomats who have survived at least two coups d'etat. As such, I was well aware of the moral dilemmas involved in deciding who gets rescued and who doesn't. Clearly, I had some responsibility for Senator Buffart. On the other hand, we had abandoned duty-free the Swiss Embassy poodle to her fate in Chad, and frankly, did the Senator have a greater moral claim on me than that lovable dog? Violet saw my hesitation. McGregor! She barked. Oh, all right, I said. I approached the senator. Come on, senator, try to walk. I looked behind myself nervously. The shouting was getting louder as more ceramic animals came through the windows. The protesters were pounding on the front door. The senator fixed me with a dazed but still malevolent eye. What was in that salad, Sonny? Dandelion and zucchini flowers. I grabbed a huge flabby arm and tried to steer her out the French doors. Dandelions? I'm allergic to those, she wailed. She began to teeter, gasping for breath. The bastards fed me lawn clippings. My stomach, she moaned pathetically. My eyes, my throat. She clutched different parts of her body as she gasped, laboring for breath. Quickly, I urged, my panic growing as the senator moved slowly towards the exit. This was the problem with senators. You can't ask the foreign legion to take them out behind the garden shed and put them out of their misery, as much as that might please the taxpayers' federation. The front door burst open. A protester in a balaclava stepped tentatively across the threshold. A posh English voice behind him shouted, Now! To the panic room, upstairs, I said. We'll do the fireman's carry. I quickly crossed the senator's arms, as I had been taught to do in all those courses over the years, and tried to lift. Huge wads of gray skin cascaded over my head and across my arms as I strained under the load. She was an impossible dead weight. But I did get her staggering up the stairs. Suddenly, she gasped, and her legs gave way. I tried to jump clear, but was tangled in her muumuu. We fell down the stairs, knocking several Vancouver avant-gardist pieces off the wall on our way. We landed at the foot of the stairs, crashing painfully into the pedestal of the residence's statue of Lester B. Pearson. Senator Buffart's weight landed directly on my chest, knocking my breath away. It was worse than the time the U.S. ambassador's female bodyguard broke two of my ribs in the Moscow Diplomatic Hockey League. I tried to regain my breath, but couldn't under the crushing weight 
of decades of senatorial dinners. I looked up to see 50 pounds of bronze Lester B. Pearson teetering dangerously on its stand. My arms were trapped under Senator Buffart, and I screamed as Lester B. Pearson went past the point of no return and tipped over on top of me. That concludes episode 15 of The Tarsans Diplomat. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already left a review on Amazon.ca or for the podcast itself on iTunes, we'd be grateful if you did that for us. And check in next week for episode 16 of McGregor's Adventures in Brussels.